Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Today, my guest is Peter Lian. Peter Lian is an attorney based in Johannesburg. Peter is a partner and the core Africa chair of the global law firm, Herbert Smith Freehills. During the last decade, international who is who of mining lawyers, legal 500 EMEA chambers have singled him out as a leader in his field. Peter, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. It's nice to have you again. Thank you very much, Sheila. Great to be with you again. Fantastic. So I've read uh, quite a few of your commentary on resource nationalism, and and I thought uh, we could delve into it from a couple of perspectives. Let's just start with... uh, the notion of resource nationalism geopolitically. Do, do you see resource nationalism per se as a developing country phenomena, or is it something that we are seeing globally, both in the North and the South? I think it's a mixture. I mean, you know, it, traditionally it's been regarded as a um, African, sub-Saharan African phenomenon. Uh, and, and certainly there was a period in Latin America maybe coming back where if you look at the Andean nations like Bolivia and Venezuela, Ecuador, there was a serious resource nationalism problem there. The irony now is that the resource nationalism problem in Latin America is actually spreading to countries which have traditionally been very economically liberal, uh, such as Peru and Chile, where, uh, you know, obviously Peru's elected a a very left-wing president, uh, Castillo, in the last few months, uh, and Chile, all bets are off as to what happens in the election in December, where there, there's a candidate from the extreme right and from the extreme left. So in, in certainly in Chile, which is the most developed country in Latin America, uh, which has always had the most market-friendly uh, mineral law regime, which goes back, frankly, to Pinochet uh, and, and Milton Friedman in the early 90s, uh, in Chile, I mean, there's a big question as to what's going to happen in terms of the mineral law regime. So it's not necessarily a developing country phenomenon, but it has always been associated with it. I mean, certainly in Asia, Indonesia has been very resource nationalistic. Uh, and I would certainly make the point that Russia, in some respects, is quite nationalistic about its uh, upstream petroleum resources, gas and oil. So, but I, you know, I, I think traditionally, Sheila, it's been a sub-Saharan African and to some extent a Latin American phenomenon driven by politics, which I'm sure we'll talk about, and also by economic populism. And, and a third factor, which is also very important, the, f- the feeling by host states, and you look at the DRC, for example, uh, and Tanzania, for that matter, feeling they were not getting a fair share of resource rents during uh, in spikes in the commodity boom, which we've seen over the last 20 odd years. So uh, when you think of, uh, say, for instance, uh, the uh, events in Chile uh, and uh, the tendencies in Russia and then of uh, Southern Africa, as you've said, uh, do you see any common trends in terms of one, uh, what seems to be the common factors that give rise to resource nationalism, uh, but also in your interactions with uh, lawmakers and business people in these countries, mm. you know, what is the justification for these policies? 
Well, it's a very, very good question. I mean, I, I you know, I think obviously the, the one thing is um, in a desire by host governments to get a better share of resource rents, as I've just mentioned, related to that, and you see this in the African mining vision, which goes back to 2009, as you well know, is, you know, the, the, these resources are non-renewable. Uh, they're part of the country's patrimony. Um, there has been, certainly governments will allege, there's been exploitation, they will say, by foreign mining companies taking advantage of naive governments. Uh, in some cases, there have been allegations of tax evasion, uh, which certainly be made in, in Zambia and Tanzania in the recent past. Uh, then, the, you know, the issues around inequality in, in a country. But, you know, all of these are grist the mill for a, for a populist government because they then enable the government to have a go at the mining company. But obviously, uh, and sometimes those factors can be justified. I mean, there certainly was a period, as again, you well know, Sheila, from your time at the World Bank, that um, in the 1990s, the government, the, the World Bank was uh, correctly, in my view, persuading African mining jurisdictions to liberalize their uh, mineral law framework, Tanzania being a standout example with all the changes in 1992, I think it was. But at the same time, the governments in those countries, I think in their desire to get investment into the country, perhaps made the fiscal regime too favorable for the investor. But from the investor's perspective, the fiscal regime needed to be very favorable and they needed all the incentives because they were engaging in, in you know, in high risk investment because mining is at the end of the day, a long term capital intensive, high risk project uh, where there are long lead times between exploration and production. So I think the, the government's made the environment very, perhaps too investor friendly and so You've seen in a country like Tanzania, when uh, President Magufuli was running the country until he died this March, a uh, pushback against the sort of liberal economic policies that were adopted uh, 20 odd years ago or more. So I'm intrigued by, you know, when I listen to uh, pretty much uh, all of what appears to be the common underlying drivers of resource nationalism, a lot of them lean more towards uh, a, a sense of uh, ownership, a sense of uh, nationhood and mm. politics rather than economics, which you know, ideally mineral development really should be about economic development rather mm. than uh, correcting what one might perceive as political ills. What, in your view, are the unintended consequences of uh, moving essentially from what is should be a, an economic discussion to one which is political in, in this context? Well, it's, um, again, a very good question. It's, it's, it's very damaging because um, the problem about that sort of approach is uh, populism and politics dominate the economic discussion. So, for example, if I go back to Tanzania, which I just mentioned, in 2017, the government enacted three new laws uh, one of which was the Unconscionable Terms Act, which gave Parliament the right to expunge after one week's, particularly one week's notice to a mining company, all the, all the unconscionable terms from a mineral development agreement. Uh, and a whole lot of terms are set out in the law as to what is unconscionable, uh, with giving the, the mining company very little redress. At the same time, the government 
banned recourse to international arbitration uh, and at one point banned the use of international or foreign bank accounts. I mean, those are all very negative. So it's no surprise that Tanzania slipped right down to the bottom uh, of the Fraser Institute survey for African uh, mining jurisdictions um, last year. Uh, obviously, you know, one doesn't know what will happen in Tanzania because there's a new administration in place. But I, what I'm trying to illustrate by that, and, and of course, Zambia is the other example, which is much closer to, to where we both sit, where the same sort of economic populism drove the Lungu administration to do what it did to Vedanta with Concola copper mines and effectively pushed Glencore out of the country uh, with the, the sale of Mapani to the state-owned mining company ZCCM, uh, effectively for $1. Uh, you know, so I just think in both countries, neither president uh, thought through the consequences. And it's interesting in Zambia, Sheila, that the new administration under President Hichilima, the UPND administration, which took power in August, uh, almost the first thing uh, President Hichilima said was he wanted to restore the relationship with all the international mining companies. And the other thing that the new Minister of Finance has said, uh, and not just said, has actually done, is address some of the really lamentable fiscal changes that the Lunga administration um, introduced in Zambia, for example, making royalties non-tax deductible, the import duty on copper concentrate, changes in royalty arrangements and the rest of it. So, I mean, I'm asking your question a very long way around. I think that populist governments don't think through the economic consequences of what, they, what they're doing. And the real problem about that is that has a chilling effect on foreign direct investment. I mean, the other example to look at is South Africa, where South Africa's share of mineral exploration expenditures now down to 1% of the global expenditure spend. I mean, 20 odd years ago, it was around 20%. So, I mean, that's a pre precipitous decline because of the uncertain regulation, regulatory regime introduced by the Mineral Petroleum Resource Development Act and the three versions of the mining charter that we now live with, which uh, have been subject to numerous court challenges. Hmm. So, so a couple of things, first of all, it seems that uh, on face value, if the governments that uh, embrace this uh, resource nationalistic tendencies had a yardstick, an economic yardstick for measuring impact, the result is that they would, if objective, conclude that it's counterproductive to the mm. very notion of trying to uh, extract uh, greater economic value. Because if the result is that uh, there's no exploration in South Africa or that it is uh, nominal. That by definition means you have a shrinking uh, yeah. mining industry pipeline because if you are not exploring, you are not discovering. If you are not discovering, you are not bringing in new mines. And if you are not bringing in new mines, then your mining footprint will shrink. And, and that for a country like South Africa, uh, it would be undesirable. Yeah. Uh, the other, of course, is that... Um, if we look at uh, Zambia, for instance, and for that matter, Tanzania, both these countries historically uh, with the, if you wish, the founding fathers started off with resource nationalism and then went back to open market economy and now they are back. Uh, it, it also begs the question, at some point, these countries have to take a view on what works and get on with it. The idea that 
with every president you might have a different take on uh, you know mineral ownership and the regulation of development of mineral resources I'm not sure that we get far and and I think even without whether or not resource nationalism works just the changing from one uh, ideological position to another over and over again can't possibly help from an economic uh, perspective but I, I wanted to to please explain to the listener, you, you made reference to the notion of unquestionable, uh, which is a provision that was introduced in Tanzania. Can you explain to the listener what that means and what the implications are for investors and why that is undesirable? Yeah, so the, the idea that the Tanzania had in 2017 was uh, to expunge unconscionable terms from mineral development agreements, which had been agreed with the previous administrations. This goes back to the 1990s. Uh, and um, the, there is a set of, unconscionable means unfair. Uh, there are a set of terms. Um, there are a set of terms that are attached to the law as to what those unconscionable provisions are. And effectively it gives the Tanzanian parliament the ability to expunge those terms from the mineral development agreement uh, effectively on a one week's notice to the mining company to come and talk to them about it. But it, it's a, a very undesirable provision because effectively you, what you're doing is retrospectively altering the terms of the agreement that the mining company in question entered into the government originally, uh, which is certainly negative for investment. And, you know, the problem about all these things, Sheila, is that, you know, I think governments... Uh, host nations uh, in developing countries, host governments in, in developing countries don't always think through the economic consequences of what they're doing and what, what impact this is going to have on foreign direct investment, what the long-term consequences of the, of the policies are. And in a sense, it's a very short-term approach by governments to a long-term issue. And that's, that's the mismatch, the mismatch between the short-term expediency of resource nationalism uh, and the long-term needs of the mining industry and the country. I, but ha having said that, Sheila, I think the, the important thing is I'm not advocating, you know, that agreement should be one-sided. I think one of the underlying causes of resource nationalism, we haven't really talked about this, is that sometimes the original agreements, and, and one's seen this in Ghana, for example, 20, 30 years ago, the original agreements that were entered into by mining companies with the host government were not fair because the terms of the agreement were so weighted in favor of the investor, both not just from a fiscal perspective, but also from a regulatory perspective. You know, you have stabilization agreements which don't allow the host country to change the terms of the, of the concession agreement for 30 years. I, I don't think that's fair, but what I'm really advocating is an equitable balance between the interests of the host nation and the investor. And when those get out of kilter, you have these sorts of responses. Hmm. Uh, I mean, the, this is important. The question really is, when uh, in the history of a country, we determine that there has been gross unfairness hmm. uh, in terms of uh, the imbalanced nature of development agreements between host countries and uh, uh, investors, what should be the remedy? Because from what, what, what I gather from you is that resource nationalism isn't the answer, that 
resource nationalism neither addresses the injustice nor for mm. that matter helps countries reap better or greater benefits than otherwise would be the case. So what really is the answer then in a case where uh, we, we can say there's proof that there has been unfairness? Well, I think the, the, the answer simply is, is to address that balance to ensure that the agreements are fair and that they are balanced. I mean, it's interesting. I, I think there are geopolitical factors behind this. We talk about another country, most perhaps the most important mineral jurisdiction in, in Africa, the DRC. It's very interesting the Sishikedi administration, like the Kabila administration more than 20 years ago, is reviewing all those concession agreements. And I understand in that process is getting financial assistance from the United States government. And I think the reason for that is a lot of those concession agreements are with now with Chinese companies. Uh, and, um, you know, at the end of the day, the DRC produces two thirds of the world's cobalt. Um, it's going to be in very interesting to see how fair that contract review regime is. But certainly there were a lot of concerns about the last time this happened in the DRC. But the, the ostensible reason given by the government is they conducting this review, this contract review, uh, on the basis that the agreements that were entered into previously by the Kabila administration, ironically, were, may not have been fair to the DRC. And one of the issues, obviously, in the DRC, which you're well aware of, many of your listeners will be aware of, I mean, despite having almost the, some of the best mineral resources in the world, and as I say, two-thirds of the world's cobalt, uh, if you look at the Human Development Index for the DRC, it's right at the country's right at the bottom. And that's because effectively the mineral resources of the country have been, I think, abused or utilized by a, a predatory elite and they've never benefited the country as a whole, which I think is a tragedy. So, so in some, there, there are a couple of things. First, as you rightly say, the geopolitics. So the United States really is throwing its head in the ring because they perceive a potential uh, lack of access to uh, valuable resources that are critical to uh, the uh, transition to green economy, cobalt being one of them. And, and so isn't it, uh, for a cynical person, you could say, you, you can almost assume what the outcome will be. Somebody's going to cry foul, because if we cry foul, China doesn't look to be playing fair, that gives us some leverage in the international space. The, the real question is, how does that help the DRC uh, in the end, especially where, to your point, assuming the press is correct, where the uh, leadership of the DRC, according to open sources, has been looting the country? You know, how is resource nationalism going to change any of that? It's not, is the short answer. Uh, it's not until you have a, you know, a proper functioning government, the DRC, which, you know, it, it, it lift, uplifts the, the welfare of the entire nation. Resource National is not going to help one iota, frankly. Um, you know, I suppose you could make the argument when the government changed the mining code, I think, in 2018, and increased royalty rates, introduced a windfall profit tax, um, and, and the rest, and um, made a, a provision that every time a, a concession was renewed, the government would get a further 5% uh, 
free carry in in uh, in the mining right in question. I mean, you could make the argument that the 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 fiscal benefit of that should benefit the whole nation because obviously the government's getting a a greater share of resource rents. But the problem is, if those rents are misappropriated or even worse, are stolen, then there's no benefit to the country as a whole. It only benefits the predatory elite who have really run the country, you know, from from day one, effectively, since you could say more or less since independence. Mm. So uh, you mentioned the Fraser's Institute report, mm. which is an annual survey of the uh, views of exploration companies. Mm. And, and of course, the, the interesting thing about the Fraser's in, uh, Institute's survey is not just that it tracks uh, the opinion of investors, but it also assesses the gains a country's what they call the mineral potential, which is yeah. to say, if you have a country that is perceived to be reasonably well endowed in minerals, logic follows it should attract a lot more uh, exploration expenditure than a country that is not. And so when you say South Africa it has dropped from a two-figure to merely 2% uh, share of the global uh, exploration expenditure budget, that should be seen uh, not just in the context of, uh, you know, exploration companies not investing in South Africa, but in the context of South Africa's real mineral potential. I mean, in real terms, that figure is, is, is much lower than that in terms of performance, because South Africa is underperforming relative to its own potential, uh, let alone the decisions by, uh, and, uh, by uh, exploration companies. And I think when I look at most of Africa, this is what worries me the most, is that uh, all things equal, Africa ought to be outdoing many exploration destinations. But as it happens, it is not. And, and so you, you feel that a, a huge part of that is resource nationalism, do you? I do, yeah, I, I, I do, unfortunately. But I mean, you know, I think there, there are some straws in the wind. I mean, you know, I think in the last um, three or four years with Tanzania, Zambia and South Africa, South Africa has always been a problem in terms of resource nationalism uh, for the last 20 years, I would say. But, you know, there, there are some straws in the wind in the sense that you now have in Zambia a market-friendly um, government uh, led by somebody who's very economically, more than economically literate in the, in the form of the president, Hitch Lima, uh, and um, a, a finance minister who wants to put the country back on the right course. So it may well be that countries like Zambia start turning around some of these sort of more ideological postures towards the mining industry and, and create the right in investment climate. The other thing in, in Tanzania, and obviously the jury's very much out, you know, whether, and you're very familiar with that country, Sheila, I mean, whether President Hassan moves away from the sort of ideological stance that uh, President Magafuli took towards the mining industry. I mean, she's already made some welcoming noises in terms of uh, changing the upstream petroleum legislation to try and get the um, the, the, the Tanzanian gas fields off the ground. There's obviously all that investment's been frozen for the same sort of resource nationalistic reasons. And none of the upstream oil and gas companies are doing anything in Tanzania until that changes. But she said this is a priority for her administration 
to get investment into those fields which are north of the Ruvuma fields in Mozambique and contiguous to it. So one has to see, I mean, the, the things could change, you know, and I, I'm hopeful here in South Africa that, you know, eventually economic reality uh, displaces the ideology you've seen uh, with the government uh, over mining that, you know, you can have socioeconomic transformation and economic growth are not mutually exclusive. The one doesn't have to trump the other. I mean, so far one hasn't seen very much sign of that, but you know, I'm hopeful that it, it may happen because the economic pressures on the government here are certainly not, not abating, they're increasing. So rightly or wrongly, my observation is that uh, regionally politicians uh, especially those who advocate what uh, is now known as resource nationalism, tend to be at least sentimentally uh, aligned with the citizens in their support of such policies. Mm. So I have two questions. The first is, given the notion of democracy that you speak for uh, those that uh, elect you, doesn't this sufficiently legitimize these policies, however counterproductive? The second is that uh, even if they don't, how does one help politicians uh, move the mindset of uh, the electorate away from resource nationalism in a way that then creates a space in which they can objectively look at mineral resources as economic resources and not something from which they can uh, generate yeah. political capital? Well, I, you know, I think the answer to that is actually Zambia. I mean, the, the, the Lungu administration was very economically populist. It made a big issue around Vedanta's ownership of Coca-Cola copper mines and all the sins that Vedanta was alleged to have committed in its stewardship of the mine, and the same in relation to Glencore. The fact is, you know, the electorate at the end of the day didn't buy it, and uh, Lungu was booted out of office in August, replaced with administration, which is, you know, economically, from an economic perspective, very, very sound and I think sensible. So it doesn't always follow that the electorate will go along with economic populism. But I mean, I agree with you, generally, economic populism is toxic and it's dangerous uh, because, and you see this in, in, in fact, in South Africa with the the economic freedom fighters led by Julius Malema, which, you know, is all about nationalizing the central bank, putting everything on as much as possible under state ownership, saying that land should be leased by the state, it shouldn't be owned by people, and all that sort of thing. But fortunately, in South Africa, the electorate hasn't bought it, because um, if you look at the last local government elections, support for the EFF hardly grew. But I want to, I wanted to go back to some fundamentals, because one of the other ways, and we haven't really talked about it, a local um, economic nationalism or, or, or resource nationalism manifests itself is around local content. And you see some of this, you know, in the um, African mining vision, but you've had a huge emphasis on local content policies in, in for example, Tanzania, where they were significantly changed uh, as a result of the changes to mining law. Uh, but it's interesting that the Intergovernmental Forum, which I think is a pretty sensible body, 
has criticized local content policies for a number of reasons. One is they say that it, they often lack clear objectives and guidelines. Secondly, the countries in question, I think this is important, Sheila, have limited industrial capacity or sometimes inferior technological capabilities, which means that local suppliers are unable actually to meet the mining sector's needs. And I think perhaps most importantly, and I can come back to South Africa, they can have a negative impact on trade, affect foreign investment flows because they really discourage imports and restrain competition between domestic and foreign inputs. And, and you know, Ken, coming back to South Africa, the, uh, the Ramaphosa administration rather strangely is, is putting a huge emphasis on localization. Uh, they're trying to get um, companies to reduce non-petroleum imports by 20% over the next five years and have sort of said to a number of sectors of the economy, you've got to really um, encourage domestic production and reduce imports. The problem about that policy at the end of the day is that it can create very uncompetitive uh, industries in a country because you effectively are freezing imports. Uh, you're saying localize as much as possible and then what does that do to the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, which is supposed to do exactly the opposite? Uh, never mind the international trade law consequences this can have. But I just thought it would be important just to highlight some of the things the IGF have said recently about uh, local content policies, because that certainly is a manif manifestation of resource nationalism. Yes, I think you did well to, to do that. So a couple of things come to mind as I listen to you. I mean, are we perhaps putting too much emphasis on uh, the, the phrase local content or for that matter what it is called? My sense is that most countries do tend to have this uh, tendency to want to protect uh, mm. national industries. I think you, 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 we saw that in the 1980s, uh, the war between Japan and the United States uh, during the advent of the, the Tigers. Uh, we see it now with uh, China and the rest of the world. In that sense, is it fair to say that whether within the context of uh, the extractives or not, uh, African governments insisting on protecting and breeding national uh, industry isn't perhaps peculiar, that perhaps the execution may be flawed, but certainly the aspiration uh, would likely resonate in many jurisdictions and over uh, different periods in our economic development? Oh, you're absolutely right to say that. I mean, the US, the US-China um, struggle at the moment is an example of that. And the Buy America policy, which uh, President Biden is really following uh, President Trump rather strangely on that. Uh, and the emphasis on, uh, you know, US production manufacturing as opposed to Chinese imports. But, I mean, you know, the, 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 the US hasn't done the same things that um, I suppose they don't need to, that the developing countries have done in terms of restricting imports, uh, increasing tariffs to the maximum you know, that, that you can do uh, under the World Trade Organization agreements and the rest of it. But I mean, I agree with you as a general principle, the whole issue around uh, local content is not unique to Africa or to developing countries. I mean, many countries follow those sorts of principles. It's a question of how they implement them and how adverse is the economic impact on a particular country. And I'm just saying that 
I think one should heed what the Intergovernmental Forum has said about local content, because the problem is, you know, in many developing countries, not least in Africa, the local industries may not have the ability or the technological ability to produce the, the necessary goods or, or provide the necessary services. Uh, and restricting these things as, for example, the Mining Charter 3 tried to do, which has just been thrown out by the High Court, um, you know, saying that 80% of goods and 70% of services have to be procured locally, uh, just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I, I agree with you on, on two levels, actually probably three. The first is that I think uh, developing countries in Africa and elsewhere, uh, when designing local content policies, do not take stock of uh, the overall uh, manufacturing and service sector capability. Uh, there seems to be a disconnect between the current state in terms of national capacity mm. and the uh, quotas that are stipulated. My sense is that the principle itself is fine, but what you can't do is insist that uh, mining companies procure 80% where your own capacity is 10%, because the only way to achieve that is either to compromise on quality and standards, yeah. or for that matter, uh, to ramp up production at a rate which from a cost of production uh, perspective, it's just going to make the mining projects more expensive. I think that's, that there is not enough thought given to that, how we migrate from a law base to one that meets the aspirations. The other you've mentioned, which is the bilateral treaties, and those are straightforward. But, uh, but I also think there's another. We mentioned the United States and China, and, and I imagine the EU and its member states will also be having its battles with uh, Beijing. But the, the, there is a difference, isn't it? When you are the United States, you have a large uh, internal market. You have a large R&D financial uh, market capability and skills capability. What you can demand of China is not exactly the same as what Botswana can. And I think, again, this is the disconnect. While we are talking about the same things, when it comes to execution and leverage and the capacity to negotiate these arrangements, my sense is that uh, African policymakers depart from the reality of their own circumstances. And this, to me, I think is the nature of the problematic aspects of uh, local content and how it plays into resource national. But I think local content per se as an aspiration and as a, a pathway towards mm. industrialization it's, it's, it's perfectly okay. I, I do also think African government seems to be unduly obsessed with local content in the extractive space at the expense of agriculture and others where actually, if you look at the value chains of those uh, sectors, they lend themselves to local processing and local manufacturing much more so than the likes of steel, which ultimately has to find uh, its markets in, uh, you know, China, Japan, and others where the consumption for steel. So I, I just think that a lot more thought uh, at executional level needs to be uh, brought to bear than is otherwise the case. I, I don't know if you if it makes any sense to you at all, Peter. No, it, it does, Sheila. And obviously your point about the US 
compared with with an African uh, developing country in Africa or Latin America is, is a very good one. It's got a huge domestic market. It's the biggest economy in the world. I mean, you, you can't compare it with South Africa or Zambia or Tanzania. It's just the comparison's not valid. So you're right. I agree with you. Well, let, let's uh, move a little closer to the end. I mean, you and I, uh, I guess we are the converted. And, and when you speak to the converted, the conversation is infinitely a lot easier. But the world has a different view of these. And from what I can see, uh, though you might have the odd president uh, who's coming into office with liberal views uh, in Zambia, and, and, and then you've got the reverse in Chile, my sense is that this tension between uh, emerging market host governments and mining industry and petroleum industry investors is, is uh, this difference is not narrowing by any stretch of imagination. And so it leaves me wondering, uh, what can we do, for instance, when you think of South Africa's mining charter three, what can we do to narrow the divergence? Because these things can't be litigated in court. I mean, you have to go to court, but really that's just making a statement. Ultimately, you have to manage uh, relations at the business level. What can we do to narrow this divergence of views, if at all? I, I think, you know, I, I think it's not uh, unsolvable. I, 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 you raise a very good point. I mean, I agree with you, litigation should really be a last resort, not your first resort. I mean, the, the Minerals Council here will argue they didn't have any option because they weren't getting anywhere with the government. Uh, but I mean, the answer, Sheila, funny enough, in South Africa, just to give you one example, is to go back to the model of the first version of the mining charter, which I was involved in, in 2002, um, which basically was a, uh, a compact between government, labor and business signed by each of them, I have to say, uh, by the unions, by business, by the Chamber of Mines and by the, the Department of Mineral Resources uh, around socioeconomic transformation of the South African mining industry. The problem is, if you look at the way the mining charter then developed, is the government then later mining ministers in 2009 and then in 2018 saw this as a, a regulatory instrument to sort of um, bash the industry over the head with. So, but if you look at the original intent of the charter was that there was a, a tripartite compact between the three important actors around necessary change uh, in, the, in, in the industry, not just from a racial ownership perspective, but in terms of an upliftment perspective, in terms of you know, social labor plans and the rest of it. Um, uh, the problem is that what started as a, as a good model became a, a pretty intrusive regula regulatory instrument. Uh, and so I think it, it, the, the model simply wasn't followed by successive ministers. But I, what I'm really saying in a broader sense is that I think you, know, you can have a common understanding between government, labor, business, and communities around what's best for the industry, for the country, for the workers, and the rest of it. I, I, I think that that model can exist. Uh, unfortunately, many uh, African mining jurisdictions and in Latin America as well have adopted a much more of a demand-driven rather than a supply-driven approach to mining and I think that's where the problem lies but the reason that happens is there's a lack of trust 
between government and business. And that's, I think, uh, you know, the, the fact that the bargain is, the original bargain struck is not seen to be fair. I think that's the underlying cause of resource nationalism. Of course, you know, economic populism, the rest of it comes on top of that. But the, the, the notion that, that what's happened in the past hasn't been fair to the host state is a major driver of resource nationalism in the developing world. I think that uh, many people would agree with you there. Peter, thank you very much for your time. I, I've enjoyed speaking with you, and I'm oh, yeah. sure the listeners will enjoy uh, listening to you too. Thank you very much, Sheila. Very, very good to speak to you again.